Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our events in person and online. Coming up on the show today, Olivia Williams, author of the new book, The Secret Life of the Savoy, Glamour and Intrigue at the World's Most Famous Hotel. Uh, Olivia, welcome to Bookstack. Hi, Richard. So congratulations on the book. And and I somehow like to imagine that you're speaking to us from a suite at the Savoy Hotel overlooking the River Thames. <laughs> oh, if only. That's making me feel sad about my flat. Um, no, I was there about this time last year in between lockdowns. Um, so it was nice to get back there having written the book for the first time. Well, well certainly a nice strategic uh, venue mm. for, uh, for, for, a, for a book for any author, I think. Um, <laughs> but the, the book is, is, is about the Savoy Hotel, but it's also about the, the family that ran it, um, the famous doily carts. So, so tell us a bit about them. Well, I really liked getting to know them and... Because I was born in the late 80s, I slightly missed their peak, uh, I think it'd be fair to say. So I felt as though they had been slightly unfairly forgotten. I wasn't actually familiar with them at all until I started digging around. And I liked their personalities as well as what they achieved. And they felt very human to me. Uh, They had plenty of setbacks as well as successes. So I was as interested in the things that went wrong and how they managed with those as the things that they then became famous for that worked out in the end. Yeah, I, I suppose that, I mean, the the two things that we particularly think of um, with, uh, founded by Richard Doily Cart, the, uh, the the first of the characters that you're looking at in the book are the Savoy Hotel um, and, and of course, Gilbert and Sullivan as well. And it, it, it struck me, actually, when I when I was reading the book, that very often we think of the Victorians as, as being a bit stuck in the mud. Um, Gilbert and Sullivan now has a, a kind of a reputation as seen as being a little bit twee, perhaps. But actually, you know, D- Doily Cart, Richard Doily Cart, was really the quintessential Victorian modern, wasn't he? Mm, well, I like that about him as well. He seems to embody this feeling that we have about the Victorian era now, which is that it's about sort of aspiration and driving ahead and modernity and dreaming up new ways to uh, spend leisure time and impress people. And it's the, it's a, it's at the end of the Victorian period that the phrase conspicuous consumption is created. And I felt as though Richard Doily Cart was really ahead of the ahead of the curve with that phrase because he identified that the hotel was a place where people would want to do that. And he wanted to create a backdrop where people could show off their wealth and their taste and have a sort of thrilling evening, which he felt was missing in London at the time. Yeah, that's it's, it's one of the things that you brought, you draw out really beautifully, actually, in the book. That there's this sense that that London, uh, surprising though it seems now, was actually a very dowdy place for uh, the by in the mid nineteenth century. Mm. Well, I think it seemed as though it had been pressing ahead with the basics of making money, but the the flair wasn't quite there yet, and restaurants were disappointing in Rich Doily Cart's view and. The theatre could do with a shake-up and becoming more professional and with different genres that people could go and watch together. And I think he just really saw the next step ahead, which was that people had made a lot of money and they wanted somewhere to spend it. And 
having done that, been on that journey essentially himself um, as a sort of upwardly mobile middle-class Londoner, I think he, he could see what other people who are similar to him would want as well. And and so many of those things are uh, completely transforming what it means to stay in a hotel. Whether it's the, uh, the the I can't remember the number you give. I think it's about four hundred bathrooms or something. That uh, whereas normally you would only expect to have four in a in a, in a big hotel. Mm. Well, that's the thing. He really wanted to plough on with making a, a completely modern luxury hotel, which didn't really exist as an idea yet in the way that we understand it. And he did that by picking out his favourite features from hotels around the world that he stayed in when he was accompanying Gilbert and Sullivan, who he had pushed together because uh, they were a slightly uncomfortable duo. Um, and he was essentially managing them and producing them. And he went on tour with them a lot. And when he came back to London, he seemed to feel a bit flat about the offerings that were in town where he came from. And so he basically put together all sorts of ideas from all the places that he'd been to create the Savoy Hotel to go alongside his theatrical career that was already in full flow. And the the the, the sense of uh, of modernity is also something which he finds in the theatre too. So the the Savoy Theatre, uh, as you describe, the is the really the first theatre to be fully uh, lit by electric lighting. Well, he went further than that. I think he claimed that it was the first public building in the world to be lit by electricity. Um, which I think slightly in character for him, he was quite pushy about it. And he just said that it would be unless someone corrected him. He believed that it was the first public building in the world and no one corrected him. So it stood as that up until now, I think no one's corrected him. So I think that is the case. And you could really see from his, uh, he had plenty of note, leather, big leather bound notebooks and he put a lot of time into working out the differences between gas and electric heating, uh, lighting and what effect that would have on the on the temperature and the, there was no detail too small for him, what effect that had on the temperature inside a theatre. He was also interested enough in how comfortable the seating was that he would look at these diagrams of mechanisms that make the seat go up and down to try to work out what the best one of you know every conceivable range that he could have. So he was a real stickler for detail. And as you say, I mean, conspicuous consumption, but also a, a sense that what I suppose today we would we would describe as the consumer is always right. Mm, yes. Um, I think what I quite liked about them as well is that they were sort of slightly unbusinesslike in that they spent a lot of money making customers happy, whether it was at the hotel or at the theatre. So quite often they didn't end up making as much as you might expect from the outside because they put on such a lavish show and they put on such lavish food, etc., that actually the sort of margins weren't great sometimes. But I, I quite like that. I think hopefully I think they were focused on the art of what they were doing rather than necessarily trying to create you know, as much profit as possible. And, that came and, across quite a lot. And, and, and presumably this is why it it attracts so so many of the uh, the rich and the famous and uh, people like Churchill have a long-standing uh, relationship uh, with, with the Savoy Hotel and the famous other club and, and, and so on. That it, It's that sense of being somewhere that is authentic but is really trying to do things with style too. Mm. Well, I think the um, very slow turnover of staff probably helped as well, because it was the same faces who you saw all the time if you were a regular 
even over decades at the hotel, you'd see the same staff over and over again. And they were, I mean, I think you can tell there's some genuine affection between the, the clients and the staff from what they write about their experience of being at the hotel and how much they seem to, how excited they seem to be by seeing someone like Winston Churchill it completely made their day. Um, so I think there's some, you know, mutual appreciation going on between the, the guests and the staff who work there. And as one of the managing directors said, um, it wasn't really about having, we don't have customers at the Savoy, we have guests. And that was an important distinction to them. Um, it was about hospitality in the sort of warmest sense, rather than customers, they hoped. So you mentioned uh, Gilbert and Sullivan uh, before. I, I, I think you described them as something like an odd couple that they'd, they'd been pushed together uh, by Carr. But but I mean, they really were a sensation, weren't they? In the in the late nineteenth century. Mm. I mean, even through all the astronomical success, things never really calmed down on a personal level between them. As I when I was reading uh, their letters and their diaries, I expected that becoming very successful would sort of quell some of the tension between them, but it never really seemed to dissipate whatever happened. So even though they were the entertainment sensation of their age, um, they were still bickering about whether the, who wrote the sort of words came first or the music came first and about money and then eventually and also with Richard Doyley Cart himself and what his role should be because Gilbert seemed to resent him slightly because he wasn't the talent in inverted commas that was himself and Gil and Sullivan and he felt as though Richard Doyley Cart was really making too much money out of their um, out of their talents essentially and Richard Doyley Cart always found that quite wounding I think um, and then in the end they fell out over, I mean, things tend to be trivial when things are built up for a long time. The carpet. Um, they <laughs> fell out over some carpet at the Savoy Theatre. Um, and I think uh, it sort of speaks to the characters involved that it got as far as it did because it was a trivial amount of money and you know, not a principle probably worth sticking up for. <laughs> um, and they could easily have settled it, you know, months before they ended up uh, getting into legal wrangle over replacing the carpet at the Savoy Theatre. But I think it just shows what the atmosphere was like, that that's all it took. And it, I mean, it is interesting that one of the things that's, that's genuinely fascinating about the book is getting inside the different mindsets of these characters. And, and you can you can see their, their fragility that, I mean, we think think of these are three of the most successful Victorians that you could possibly imagine in terms of name recognition right up there with characters like Gladstone and, and Oscar Wilde and, and, and so on and, and, and yet with with Gilbert he's he's worried that by doing these things he's just a hack that Sullivan would rather be off writing some great symphony uh, and Cart as you say you know knows that basically he's management and he's wounded by these kind of comments by uh, by, by by Gilbert so it it's it's a it's a fascinating insight into the psychology of success, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think that was one of the things that attracted me to them as a uncomfortable trio, um, and also I think just that also Richard Doyley Cart had to keep pressing things forward, and uh, their characters are all quite different, even though they all seem quite highly strung. They're all also have some different uh, weak points in their character, and one of them for Sullivan was that he became quite lazy at certain points and in Cart's view and so Richard Doyley Cart would have to essentially go to the south of France partly 
for a holiday and to see how his friend was getting on, but also to chivvy him along and try and press him into writing something. Um, so Richard really went to great lengths to make sure that these productions kept kept flowing. I mean, it, he created uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. In some ways, he also created Oscar Wilde. Yeah, he has um, had a great talent for talent spotting, uh, which was essentially how he his first career was as a, a talent agent. Having failed, he he wanted to write what Gilbert and Sullivan were writing, but he didn't really succeed at that. So he sort of admitted defeat and became management, as you say. And um, one of his early early discoveries was Oscar Wilde, who'd only written a very slim of poetry before Richard Doylecott could see the potential and that he would be loved by Americans. So he was dispatched across the Atlantic to go on a huge nationwide tour, which was fairly, I'd say, unprecedented at the time. No, I, I don't think many um, British poets would have had had the you know, wherewithal, really, to have propelled themselves around America in that period um, with so little, really, to, to recommend them. They, he only had a tiny book to sell. Um, but it went so well that he was there for almost a year, I think, uh, having only planned there to, to be there for a few months. And he was completely punch drunk by the end of it. And as many of Richard Doylecott's um, talent agents, clients complained, he was worked extremely hard and made to keep to a grueling schedule uh, because Richard Doylecott expected everyone to work as hard as he did, essentially. Uh, so he didn't really understand or listen to uh, complaints sometimes came back from his uh from his talent uh who didn't really who wanted a bit of a break sometimes yeah we had uh, matthew sturgis on the podcast the biographer of oscar wilde uh, a few weeks ago and he was talking about exactly this uh, this this kind of element to to wilde too and i mean it, it does it, it i i was fascinated because in in some ways it shows just how skillful cart was that keeping all these plates spinning because he sent oscar wilde kind of around america uh, around the united states but part of the reason why he was doing it was because he wanted to promote this uh, gilbert and sullivan uh, opera patient which to some degree uh, is about uh, the aesthetes and characters like uh, Oscar Wilde. But he does, obviously he doesn't want to uh, upset Wilde or humiliate him. Somehow he manages to launch Wilde, but at the same time still launch this, uh, this um, light opera by Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, which to some degree ridicule, ridicules characters like Wilde. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a skillful act that, he, that he's able to pull off and a, and a great insight into his character. <laughs> yes, and also I think it sort of shows quite quite often he's sort of blurring together what different talent agent clients were doing, what his different businesses were, the theatre, the hotel. You know, he could see the links between different things that he was doing. He thinks, you know, I'm doing a production called Patience, which relates to people like Oscar Wilde. You know, you can see how all the connections in his mind are working. And then he makes, you know, he builds a hotel that has very theatrical quality to it. And you can just constantly see how he's making all these links between all the things that he's experiencing. So after after Richard Doyley Cart, uh, there's there's uh, Helen Lenoir, uh, his his wife, and then his son Rupert who run it. And Rupert kind of tries to reinvigorate uh, the, the kind of the Doyley Cart Opera Company and the the hotel. Then the, then there's Bridget, um, who then who d really presides over a, a period of long decline. The the opera company eventually will 
closed. The Savoy becomes down at heel. Um, it's 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 is it too easy to to read into that a, a story of, of of Britain losing its empire and and so on? I mean, the, the opera company closes in 1982, just as uh, Margaret Thatcher is about to hit her zenith. And uh, it, it struck me that that Bridget Doylecart was exactly the kind of old school Brit that former Countess of Cranbrook that uh, that Margaret Thatcher would have been looking to sweep away. Mm, I think there was um, certainly by by then, if not, as you said, there's a long decline a few decades earlier, things that slightly stalled in the sense of trying to come up with new ideas. I think they they always, because they had such dedicated um, guests and lovers of the operettas, I think they were always quite worried about disturbing things too much because people were very attached to the formula. So it was always quite a risk to do it, to change anything, really. And um, I think, yeah, it was quite tempting to have that if it ain't broke, don't fix it attitude. Um, I think what Rupert did was probably more skillful than Bridget because he managed to update things in the 1920s, uh, which is why we have these Art Deco touches in, well, quite a lot of what he did. So in the Savoy Hotel and then they also owned Claridge's as well, which is very famous for its Art Deco. And none of that would have happened without Rupert. getting on board with Art Deco uh, early on and being enthusiastic about jazz and other things that we associate with the 1920s. So he was able to move on from that Victorian template that he had inherited. But then by the time we get to Bridget, she doesn't really rock the boat too much in any of the things that she's inherited. She basically thinks of herself as a sort of steady hand on the tiller. Um, You know, you don't see any sort of 1960s 1970s style touches or any kind of nod to moving with fashion um, really in her period at all. It's, it's interesting as well with uh, with with Bridget. Whereas whereas Richard Doyley Cart had been so flamboyant, everything was about luxury and style. Uh, there's 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 a a moment in the book where you're describing how uh, she uh, Bridget comes to the United States and her, uh, a member of her staff insists on upgrading her to a to a suite at the hotel because normally whenever she travelled she would stay uh, in the cheapest room in in any hotel. It it seemed like a very un. Richard Doily Cart type of thing to do. <laughs> yeah, and I think also that's um, maybe how quite a lot of people who inherit things feel. I think because obviously he had made all of this stuff himself, so I, I don't think he felt particularly embarrassed or worried about spending money that he had fairly directly made himself. Whereas I think she felt slightly self-conscious at, at being the third generation of a successful group of people. Um, and she was generally pretty parsimonious and I think towards the end I mean I'm sure she you know she wasn't in a sort of desperate situation but she did have to worry about the Doyle Cart Opera Company because it was hemorrhaging money for a long time so she probably didn't really feel like she should be spending a lot of money because a lot of her personal money was going into propping up the opera company that she had inherited um, in the final few decades of her life. 
I'm I'm really interested in this question of of modernity. Going back to to Richard Doyley Card, I, you know, I wonder where where do we find the the new Richard Doyley Carts today? I mean, is it is it something in uh, London or New York, or or is it in somewhere like China with the the embrace of of new technologies of fast trains and uh, and, and and so on and and kind of mm. u- ultra luxury. Yeah, that is a great question. I was trying to think who also has that sort of magpie-ish quality that he has because he didn't really stick rigidly to one thing because you could pick people, um, I don't know, such as Andrew Lloyd Webber or some other theatre impresario who's been successful, but he's not quite the same because he hasn't, I don't think he's branched out in the way that Richard Doyley Cart did. So I don't know, I almost think maybe someone, someone like Elon Musk, he sort of seems to pick up on trends and give them a bit of a backing and see if they work out. I think that sort of that spirit maybe slightly reminds me of him. Yeah, that's interesting that, you know, Musk and, and I suppose in an earlier generation, Richard Branson and, uh, you know, maybe Jeff Bezos with, with his newspaper and Amazon, but also the space exploration that uh, that that someone like Branson has too, that it, it is fascinating what, what, as you describe it, that kind of magpie-ish uh, quality. And it, is that is that really what, what goes wrong with somebody like, say, Bridget, that everything is uh, it's it's almost as if everything is just set in stone, and that that the the imagination that that impulse effectively is gone. It's just about minding the shop by that stage. Yeah, I, I think that's probably why it loses its luster and its excitement um, in a way. I mean, I'm sure that people who went along to the productions, went to stay in the hotels, you know, enjoyed them for what they remember them being, and for them to you know continue as they were. But I didn't, never really had the impression from her that she really had the confidence or the boldness to start thinking about remodeling what, what she had inherited. I think she she didn't seem to have that kind of impulse of thinking that she would create something new or buy a new business um, because Rupert liked doing that as well. He liked adding on little businesses to the side of the hotel, if you like. So he created his own Savoy Bedworks, which made the beds for the hotels from scratch. And he created his own Savoy laundry service, which was a laundry service from scratch that was there to service the hotel and um, bought a farm that could provide the restaurants with produce directly. And she doesn't really come up with any of those schemes, um, you know, whether to fall flat or not to fall flat. She doesn't even try. She just sticks to pretty much exactly what Rupert created and tries to manage this slightly unwieldy set of things that she's that she's in charge of. It is. It is also interesting. I, I I was troubled actually by the the question of public funding because the the Doily Card Opera Company really collapses once it stops. Uh, once the the Arts Council, the public funding body uh, in the UK, announces that it's not going to give uh, the opera company any more any more funding, and it it, it, it I think that anybody who's interested in uh, the arts and classical music and so on uh, wants to wants to see those 
things thrive and, and understands the importance of the uh, things like the Arts Council and public funding bodies to their success. And yet, on the other hand, I was really struck that Richard Doyley Cart, of course, did all these amazing things uh, with his uh, theatre theatre companies and opera companies and light opera and serious opera and everything without any kind of public funding at all. How how do we how do we square that circle uh, at the uh, the beginning of the the twenty first century? I wonder. Mm. Well, I mean, it does it does seem a shame. That. I mean, I think if they'd asked for help earlier on, perhaps the Arts Council would have agreed. But I think it was felt that the productions had become so threadbare and stale that the Arts Council felt that it shouldn't really intervene to save them. So I don't know if maybe at an earlier stage when things were more vibrant, they could have made the case to keep them going. But I mean, Richard Doolycott would obviously have never have envisaged needing any kind of state assistance for his business, I think he'd find that kind of a, quite a peculiar <laughs> suggestion that that's how things would end up. But so, I mean, it's, I mean it sort of slightly depends on your ideology, ideology in a way. I mean, if the if the productions weren't as good as they were, then in a sense, you you know, I, I think the audience probably would have been there if if the productions had been of the right quality. So, I mean, arguably. Maybe the Arts Council was right to criticise. Um, and I think if Bridget had been a bit younger and maybe could have taken some more advice from the people around her, they could have found a sort of private sector way of rejigging things and making people actually want to come in larger numbers to make the thing commercially more successful. But it was a very, I mean, I think you'd have to have been very talented to deal with all the problems that they had because their argument was that the that, that there were still the audience figures there it wasn't that that had declined so much it's just it was so squeezed financially trying to maintain the productions on the same number of people coming if that makes sense um so even though they were fairly romantic and didn't make uh making money a priority that had swung to such an extreme you couldn't carry on losing money at the rate that they were even if there were still people who who did want to come see them so it was a shame that they couldn't make the balance the books properly yeah i I suppose it's it's i mean it's not an exact uh, comparison but it it would be like something uh, i guess like andrew lloyd webber's cats or phantom of the opera or something huge commercial successes uh, in a hundred years time being supported by the arts council and presented as uh, something that was intrinsic to the nation that it's just a very different uh, kind of experience i i I suppose between those two those two states Mm. I mean, arguably, I mean, I've never seen a, I, I wasn't able to see an original Doily Cop production of a I did, actually. I oh, did, yeah. Did you? I, I did. did so. was, it, was it looking well, tired it, it, by it, the it, 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 it had become, I mean, exactly as you described it, they, they had become uh, quite threadbare. But, the, but there was something, you did genuinely feel as if you were watching something from a, a, a kind of a, a completely different age. I, I do wonder, though, whether, you know, that that is kind of part of the problem that uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, I mean, it, it it's still quite popular today, but it is seen uh, somewhat in a, a kind of a twee fashion and is often presented in that. Whereas, as you make quite clear in the book, it, it, it was actually the complete opposite in the Victorian era. These were very popular, but they were acerbic as well in the, the way that they lacerated uh, Vic, Victor, the Victorian establishment. Yeah, and I think even, I mean, 
even if you've been to the other comic operettas, I think it's hard to compare the the comedy of those lyrics and how intelligent they are. Um, like that, it's you, there's many different ways to enjoy one of those operettas, which I think is why they were so popular for so long. And I think, it, yeah, I mean, kind of going back to your question, it's a shame that the original Doily Cart Opera Company couldn't survive long enough for things to maybe come back into fashion or people to you know, stick with it and then discover maybe some of the lesser known operettas that they might have enjoyed if the opera company had stuck around rather than, I think, also people sort of fell into a rut of thinking that there are basically three um, because they're the sort of perennial favourites that go round and round again but there were some I think they could have explored the kind of lesser known ones um, and maybe yes if they could have survived uh, a dip in fashion um, the whole opera company could have survived but then you wouldn't have an original family member to oversee it anymore Um, so I don't know if it would have changed without Bridget in any case because then you wouldn't have really an original person who'd had things directly handed down to them through their family so um so what's next for you olivia what's the what's the next project you're working on um i'm not sure well my first book was a history book about gin um so i was slightly interested to maybe segue away from gin into another spirit um (laughs) but (laughs) um because there are other spirits with good good stories um so yeah i was slightly tempted by one of those so you'll you'll be able to put all those books together by drinking gin and whatever that other spirit is in the American bar at the Savoy Hotel. Yeah, that that would be a great way to celebrate whatever is happening next. <laughs> Perfect. So the book is The Secret Life of the Savoy, Glamour and Intrigue at the World's Most Famous Hotel. Uh, it's written by my guest, Olivia Williams, and published by Pegasus. Uh, but for now, Olivia, uh, congratulations on the book. It really is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful read. Uh, thanks again for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks very much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.